Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the struggling church in Corinth. They were allowing the culture to influence them more than they were impacting the world. As a result, the church was crumbling. Paul's strong words of rebuke and encouragement teach us many things about how we as believers should live in a dark and depraved world. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. I find it interesting where we are in our study today. Uh, and God just, I think, does this stuff. I look at it and go, Lord, how did you do this? And I was, didn't really realize it until I was doing my study what this study is all about. But it is about Paul, who is the faithful spiritual father. And today, if you open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're going to begin at verse 8. Please stand with me as we read this together. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8. The apostle continues, as you are already filled, you have already become rich, you have become kings without us, and indeed I wish you had become kings so that we also might reign with you, for I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. And we are fools for Christ's sake, but you... You're prudent, Christ. We are weak, but, oh, you're strong. You're distinguished, but we're without honor. To this very present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and roughly treated and are homeless. We toil, working with our own hands. When we're reviled, we bless, and when we're persecuted, we endure. And when we're slandered, we try to conciliate, and we have been, become the scum of the earth, the dregs of all things, even until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have become your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you if the Lord wills, and I shall find out, not of words or of those who are arrogant but their power. But the kingdom of God does not consist of words but in power. For what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? You may be seated. It is a true thing for me personally that being around maturing, growing Christians is a sheer joy. It is a joy of my life, being with Christians who are growing up. You see, what I have found is that they tend to be humble. They tend to be Christ-centered, others-minded, spirit-filled, spirit-motivated, they're service-oriented, they're joyful, they're loving, they're forgiving, they're gracious, they're compassionate. They're generous, they're encouraging, they're teachable, they're disciplined, they're uplifting and hope-inspiring, they're eternal-minded, and the Holy Spirit is fruitful in their lives. And what I know about a growing Christian is that when you're growing in Christ, is that the more you grow, the more you're going to become just like Jesus. And I thank so much, God, so much for that. 
and those people in my life that I see growing and becoming more like Jesus because you are such a joy. And there's a lot of you in this church that are that to me. You're just a joy. You're so easy to be with. You know, we kind of came up with this model many years ago in the book of Philippians, but if you're looking for joy in your life, it's spelled this way. It's Jesus, others, and you. And if you put it in that order, Jesus, others, and you, you will know joy. If you think you can spell joy yourself, you know, looking to others and then Jesus, you'll never have joy. And that is the real truth of it all. On the other hand, there are those believers who are carnal, who are stunted in their spiritual growth, and I know that they can be a real drag to be around. Though they've given a new nature in salvation, they've been given a new heart, and they're capable of spiritual understanding growing, they remain yet uncommitted to the Lord. They're still compromising. They're half-hearted. They're undisciplined. They're spiritual babes, and as a result, they tend to be carnal. They're proud. They can be self-centered, self-serving, self-righteous, self-promoting, self-willed, flesh-driven, judgmental, worldly thinking, critical and sensitive, easily offended, defensive, impatient, complaining, unteachable, unforgiving, hurtful, jealous, you know, selfish, greedy, unloving, harsh, discouraging, unfruitful, and most miserable people of all in the world because they have too much of Jesus to be happy with the world and too much of the world to be happy with Jesus. In other words, they're joyless. They don't have the joy of the Lord. And over the years, I have been around people just like this. Christian people, people who have given their lives to the Lord at some point, but somewhere they just lose the heart for the Lord and they don't continue on in the Lord. But most of all, how I know this so well is because I have been this person. Because it has been my life on so many occasions when I find myself drifting away and I find myself becoming very self-centered and very self-willed and very just kind of focused on everything that is for me. And then I start finding myself being grumpier and grumpier and grumpier not a real joy to be around. You see, people that are not walking after the Lord are not very joyful. And I pray that somehow God makes you all a joyful people. You know, this, is, this was the condition, what I've just described, of the church at Corinth. This is the report that Paul heard about when he received the word from Chloe's house while he was over there in Ephesus about what was happening in the church at Corinth. This is where the people were at. They had become very carnal. They were stunted in their growth. And though this is the same church that Paul had founded many years ago, though it's that same place, now it is no longer functioning in the same spirit that it began with. You know, though it had been a good beginning and Paul was there and he had led many of those believers to the Lord himself, somewhere they stopped growing. They gave themselves over to carnal reasoning. They became more like the world. It seems that the world had a much greater influence on them than they were having upon the world. And they began reasoning like the world and doing things like the world. And it's like they had this Peter Pan syndrome. You know, I won't grow up. I won't grow up. I'll never go to school. I'll never go to school. They just were not going to grow up. And of course, Paul, I believe, when he heard the report, he was deeply disappointed. And it's a hard thing if you know that these people you've loved, you remember such great memories and Hearing now the response of what's going on, Paul writes to them this impassioned letter. A letter that is critically important for him to send to this church 
Because in this letter, he hopes to, ex hopes to expose the error of their thinking and the errors of their ways. And speaking the truth in love, he seeks to lead them back onto course, onto the right course, to get their thinking straight, to be renewed in the Lord. Now, I think this, that this letter was so important for the Corinthian church, but the Holy Spirit also made sure that we still have it today because it's just as important for us because like the Corinthian church, we are just as prone to all these things as they were then. Do you guys recognize that? Have you seen these struggles in your own life? Have you seen those seasons when you too have lacked the joy of the Lord, when you've become more carnal in your reasoning and you begin to think just like the world? You see, Paul also, we saw in the beginning of the, the book, he also described that other class of people, those who are the natural man, he calls them, these are the unbelievers in the world. They're not redeemed. They're completely incapable of spiritual understanding and godly wisdom. They're spiritually blinded. They're spiritually dead to the gospel. They're like the walking dead. They're lost. That's what we see out there in the world. People who don't know Jesus, they, they are lost. They're hopeless. They're walking in darkness. And they're destined for hell for eternity. See, Paul understood that you can't expect unbelievers to understand spiritual wisdom. He understood it. It's impossible for them to do it. Therefore, it should never surprise us as believers that we see the world without Christ in the condition that it's in. And it's in a mess. I mean, it is a real mess right now. We see it. It's a world without Jesus who rejects Jesus. You know, and I think this, these people are lost. They're blind. They stumble in the darkness because they're blind. And they can't see and they can't hear. So lost people do what lost people do. When you see these things in the world, that's the evidence that people are just lost. They don't know. And if you're a believer here this morning, this was once your story. Once you were lost and you were dead in your sin. You were then drawn to this wonderful, marvelous truth of the gospel by the Holy Spirit who then gave you the ability to see and to hear and to understand and it is a marvelous gift that he would lead us to repentance, that he would lead us to salvation. One of the things that Paul has been stressing to us here is actually a couple of things. First is, the wisdom of God is foolishness to this world. It's foolishness. But on the vice versa, the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. You're not going to see these two coming together. Christian maturity, as we have seen, is not automatic. It is a walk of faith. It is a day-by-day -day process while we learn to grow in the knowledge of Christ through his ever-living, eternal word. You see, the Holy Spirit's work, he's always working. Did you guys know that? He's always working in us. He's, he who began a good work is going to continue to do that work, even when we resist it. But he's doing his part. The Holy Spirit's working in us to bring us to perfection, to be like Christ himself. And he's doing his part. But he will not force us to grow up. He will allow us to, to go through trials and temptations and to be tested. But at the end of the day, we're all going to have to do our part in faith humble ourselves and totally deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow after Jesus if we're really going to be, be full in Christ. You see, the old man has got to die for the new man to live. 
And so the aim for us, even as pastors, is this. It's just not to see people saved, as wonderful as it is. I love to see people saved, but for me, it's much more than that. I love to see believers grow up. I love to see them mature. I love to see them discipled and cultivated to maturity in order that they might gain the mind of Christ and then discover the riches and the blessings that belong to all the children of God. Because we are a blessed, blessed people, but not all people see it. Years ago in 1994, right after the Iron Curtain had fallen, we got involved in a ministry in Far East Russia and we, we sent a team over there, and there was many people who responded to the gospel. When we came back, we were grieved because well, we left them there without a pastor. So we said, we won't go back until we can leave a pastor there who can instruct and teach the people so that they can grow up in the faith. It's that important. And the Lord sent us Ray and Rebecca Curran, who are still there over in Russia to this day, still serving the Lord over there, but we knew how essential it is. It's not just getting saved, no. It's then growing up to discover the riches of this relationship. And it gets richer and richer as the years go by. You know, in the book of Galatians, Paul describes this conflict that goes on within us between the spirit and the flesh. And he likens it like to a civil war that is within where the flesh is warring against the spirit the spirit is warring against the flesh, and they will never be able to coexist in peace. The only time we're ever going to be done with this flesh is the day that it's six feet under the ground. That's the day. You see, Paul says here, if you sow to the flesh, you will reap from the flesh. And that if you sow to the spirit, you will reap from the spirit. And that's the decision that every one of us as believers has to make every day. And the Bible tells us that those who are living according to the flesh cannot please God. If you're living for your flesh, and that's where your relationship with God is, you will never, ever be able to please God. See, there's going to come a day, Paul says in our study here, when every believer is going to appear before the beam of seat of Christ, where he is going to judge the value of our works done here while on earth. Our works are going to be tested by fire. Oh, we're saved, but what we do for the Lord will be tested. And every work that is born of flesh, like wood, hay, and stubble, is going to be burned up. And every work that is born of the Spirit will be like gold, silver, and, 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 and uh, precious stones, when tested by fire, it's going to be proven all the more valuable and precious in the sight of God. Only those works born of the Spirit are going to really receive the rewards of our faith. See, this Paul says, too, we saw this last week, there's coming a day when even our motivations, the, the reason behind the things we do are going to be scrutinized and exposed, laid bare. Hebrews 4.13, it says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. This is one of the things that I've shared with you over and over again. It is a good, good thing in your life when you finally realize that God knows everything about you, that you can't put a face for him. You can put mask on and you can psych me out and psych each other out, but he always knows the truth about you. And so you better approach him that way. He gets it when you're trying to manipulate him. Do you ever, ever think he can manipulate God? 
Well, I've spent a lot of time trying to do it. I've given him my counsel many times. He's never listened to me. And this is not, I was giving my testimony the other night. I was a master manipulator. But I came to a point, I said, Lord, there's no point of trying to manipulate you. You know the absolute truth about me. You know why I do what you do. And someday he's going to expose all that and bring it to bear. You see, God isn't concerned just about what we do, but the motivations behind what we do. He says, one day they'll all be exposed. You see, if you serve to serve yourself, even in ministry, that's going to be revealed. If you serve to serve the glory of God, that's going to be revealed. It's going to be revealed for what it is. So I say, Lord, then just do a genuine work in my life. I don't want it to be fake. I don't want to be a fraud as a Christian. I don't, I don't want to play games. I don't want to try to think I can psych you out for sure. You know, he's, he's, he knows the truth. And so then Paul then uses himself, we saw last week, as an example of these spiritual principles, mentioning himself and Apollos and all. He says, all we are is really we're just servants. We're ministers. That, that word means minister, but it, we said it refers to the galley slaves. These are the under rowers, under the ship, all rowing together in sync, going for the same, going, working for the t- same ends. They obey to bring pleasure to their master, the captain of the ship. So that when they finally arrive at their destination, the captain gets all the glory for what he's done. Paul says we're, we're merely stewards. We're merely managers given the task and the, the pleasure, really, of overseeing God's work or his, his ministry that he has for us. And we're, we're called to be faithful stewards, serving for the pleasure of our master. You know, Paul said, I don't serve to please other people. It didn't matter to me what other people think about me. He said, I'm not serving here to please even myself. I don't even trust my own judgments about myself. Now, as Paul says, what matters to me most is how God judges me. What matters to me most is what God thinks of me. And so I want to be that person. I want to be a God pleaser, not a man pleaser. And this is the example that Paul set before them. Now, as we go on now, Paul begins to confront them with their actions where they are and their arrogant attitudes. He says in verse eight, you're already filled, you've already become rich, and you've become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that you would also might reign with you. We might reign with you. Now, Paul here is speaking with sarcasm. I think Paul and I would have gotten along pretty good because I can be sarcastic sometimes, but he's kind of with tongue in cheek here He is now addressing where they think they are in their spiritual pride as carnal believers, what they foolishly actually believe about themselves. I like how the Living Bible says, it says, so you seem to think you already have all the spiritual food you need. You are full and spiritually contented, rich kings on your thrones, leaving us far behind. I wish you really were ahead on your thrones for, what then time, for when that time comes, you can be sure that we will be there too, reigning with you. I have my own translation. So you think you've, by your carnal reasoning, your own opinions of yourself, that you've got everything that you ever needed, that you finally arrived. You don't need instruction anymore. You're rich. You're in need of nothing. You think you're cut above the rest. You have no more room for growth. You know, you have become so high and mighty in your own opinion of yourselves that you're acting like kings ruling and reigning on your own high and lofty thrones. And the amazing thing he's saying is that you did all this without us. You don't need us. 
You know, you can do it without us apostles. You think that you don't need us now and you're looking down on us as if we're nothing important to you. He says, I really wish you were kings. At least then, you know, us apostles might ascend to be as great as you are. It's really tongue in cheek here. He's rebuking the church much like Jesus is in his letters to the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. You see, this is the condition of the church at Laodicea. Jesus says, you know, you say, I am rich. I've become wealthy. I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. See, this is what you think about yourself, Jesus says, but I'm going to tell you the truth about yourself. You're really wretched. You're really naked. You're blind. You know, you, you got nothing. You're poor. So Jesus tells them in Revelation 3.18, he says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may be clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed the eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see for those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. You see, like the Laodicean believers, these carnal Corinthians, they're so smug now and they're so proud and arrogant. They think they've arrived. They don't need anything else. In their own eyes, they think they're past any need for any growth or instruction. They've, they're really there. Anybody here feel like that? I have felt like that again. In my own foolishness, I felt like at times, you know what? I'm, I've come a long way, man. And uh, God, you're really so lucky that you have me here today. Uh, how could you be so blessed? And then uh, the Lord just kind of takes you to that place where he has to kind of humble you a little bit. And, and I, I'm so thankful he does. I'm so thankful. Once, many years ago, when I was writing music, I wrote this one song. When I had these lyrics here, I thought about that if you've come too far to look at the poor in heart, if you've come too far to forget where you got your start, if you've come too far to step your good self down, if you've come that far, you better turn around. Paul says in verse 9, For I, th I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, but both to angels and to men. Now, Paul here uses himself as the contrast of his ministry compared to their own greatness. He says, because we're apostles, God's faithful message is appointed by God in the eyes of the world. And now even the eyes of you believers, you know, we're kind of seen as nothing. We're really nothing. He says, but this is how we see ourselves. The world's way of thinking is that we're worthless. That we have no purpose. We're worthless teachers leading nowhere, contributing nothing significant of value. However, like apostles, like the world's accepted heroes, we don't seek to strive for worldly acceptance. This is not what we're about, being apostles. We're not here to kind of become the heroes of the world. So we're willing to become a public spectacle to the world, to angels, to men. He says, we've been put on public display for the world to mock. And this is a really interesting picture here in his description of being a spectacle. What does that mean? Well, when a Roman general returned from a campaign and having won a great victory in battle, it was celebrated by what was called a triumph, a victor's parade, if you will. The general would enter the, center, enter the city in all pomp and all glory, and behind him would be his troops. But trailing way behind at the end of the parade would be all the spoils of battle, all the spoils of war. All the things that they captured, the evidence of their victory in battle. And there would be a host of captured 
prisoners kind of in chains, kind of making their way. Making, these were the spoils of battle. You see, these are the ones who were the spectacles. They were the spectacles. They were the ones in chains, making their way to the very end, kind of, uh, you know, people mocking them. These are the losers. These are the ones that lost. The victors are up front. The losers are in the back. And this is what Paul means when he refers to himself as a spectacle. He is considered that kind of captive. He's a conquered prisoner, condemned to death, maybe in the eyes of the world. But there's something that Paul knows. This is a beautiful thing. I think about it for myself. You know, it's interesting that we can spend so much time in our lives fighting against God and battle. And finally, the day come, he captures us. And we now become his servants, and he does the victor's parade, and we're at the end of it. But you know what we discover? The beautiful thing is, that one who we fought so hard against was always fighting for us. Wow. I fought so hard against the Lord only to find that he's always been fighting for me. That's such a beautiful thing when you realize that. And Paul understood that. And so while these smug, superior, proud, arrogant Christian uh, Corinthian believers were boasting in their self-imposed greatness, basking in their supposed you know, maturity themselves, their riches, their honor among men, considering themselves a ruler, Paul says, well, we who lead you for Christ's sake, we're but prisoners. We've been captured and condemned to death, the least of men, and we have no boast. He says, you can be great, but we'll see who we're going to be. He says in verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. You're distinguished, but we are without honor. And again, in continued sarcasm, Paul forces these believers to see the logic of their foolish reasoning. You know, we apostles say, we're foolish for Christ's sake in the eyes of the world, but you... <laughs> Oh, man, you people are so wise, so great in your own eyes. You know, we're weak in the eyes of the world. Boy, not you. You're so strong in the, in, the, in the things of the world. And you think you're so great, so distinguished and honored among men, but us, us who led you to Christ themselves and have authority over you, we're despised among men. We have no honor among men, by men by the world's, world's standards and how is it that Paul would say that how we brought you the message of salvation, but now you can dismiss us as if we have nothing of importance to tell you while you elevate yourselves? The point that Paul is making here is that if this lost, dying, foolish world is singing your praises, if the world is singing your praises, you find yourself aligned with the foolishness of this world. Can't you see that there's something terribly wrong when the world is clapping for me. Jesus said it like this in John 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. He says, remember the word I said to you, this slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep your word. And so he continues, all that he's saying here. Verse 11, to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed, are roughly treated and are homeless, and we toil working with our own hands. When we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. And when we're slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. 
Here they were, the Corinthian believers, boasting in all their own greatness, measuring themselves according to the world's standards. And Paul says, well, examine our lives. What do you see with us? He says, no, though God has given us the highest privilege of all to be his servants, appointed by God to serve and accomplish his will, how is it that we have lived among you? Did we live in luxury? On thrones, arrogantly ruling and strutting and reigning, just like the world does who thinks it's so great? No, despite the privilege that God has given to us as apostles, we have experienced hunger and thirst. You know, we haven't clothed ourselves in the finest and the best clothes. We were treated roughly, with disrespect, wherever we go. We don't even have a home to call our own. We're homeless. We work with our own hands, doing manual labor. Why? So we can provide ministry for you. So that we don't be a burden to you. You need to understand that manual labor, even in the Greek culture, was something that was like, this is the lowest of the low when you work with your hands. Like many kind of consider being a blue-collar worker today. We don't believe that. He says, rather than being among, honored among men, we're reviled, we're abused, yet we respond by blessing those who revile us. We're persecuted, we're mocked, we're beaten, we're abused, but even then we keep on pursuing, we keep on going forward in our walk with God. We get slandered by people who say all kinds of evil things about us that are untrue. How do we respond? Well, we respond with gentleness and kindness. See, according to the carnal worldly standards who think they're highly and honored and privileged by God to be used, he says, no, we're just the scum of the earth. That's all we are. We're just the bottom of the barrel. We're the dregs. Right there, the very scum at the very bottom. And the point that he's making is that greatness in the eyes of the world and greatness in the eyes of the kingdom of God are very two different things. And a believer should never be confused by it. Because God looks for different things in his people than the world looks for. And so with his words, Paul has had to humiliate these carnal believers in order that they might see the foolishness of their own reasoning. And he says to them in verse 14, For I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have become your father through the gospel. Paul is saying this, I'm not writing these things to shame you. I'm not writing them to to crush you or burden you or discourage you. He says, no, I'm writing these things because I love you. Because you need to be corrected. You're going in a wrong way. Your thinking is all messed up. And I want to see you get your thinking straight and your heart straight. Why? Because I consider you my beloved children. And just as the Father loves his children, I want to write to admonish you and exhort you and encourage you to repent and get back to where you need to be with the Lord. It says, in Christ Jesus, I became just as a father to you through the gospel. And indeed, Paul did see himself as a spiritual father. You see, he was actually there when many of them first came to Christ. He was there when they saw their, took their first breath and being a born again Christian. And he's like a father to them. 
As a good father who led them to Jesus, he's speaking as a spiritual father, now exercising his authority and rights as a father as he seeks to now bring correction to his children. Paul says, you might have a lot of teachers and tutors that are good for you and they instruct you in good things, but you don't have many fathers. Dads, I want you to pay attention here. It's Father's Day. We're celebrating, and I know there's our, our thoughts about fathers can be all messed up sometimes because if you have a good father, you're really blessed. But Paul here describes what it means to be a godly father who loves his children enough to confront them in their error and seeks to correct them on their course when they're astray. A loving father, we know, will love his children enough to admonish them, to reprove them, to correct them, even discipline them if it's necessary. He understands his God-given a responsibility and will take personal responsibility for the character of his children, will do everything necessary to see that they're trained up in a way because they know that someday their, their, their children are going to be away from them. That's the role of a father. It's an important role, something we don't see that often. And I think of this in, in, in Hebrews. You see, the truth is, is that there came a time in my life many years ago, and I'm so grateful for it, where the Lord really conveyed to my heart that he was my father. I shared my testimony the other night, and, and I didn't have a good relationship with my father. And so when I came to my relationship with Christ and I was moving along, at some point the Lord said, I'm, I'm your father, and I'm going to be a father to you. And I appreciated it, but all, for years I kept thinking, well, Lord, put somebody else in my life to be a father to me. And I kept looking for people. I even asked people, would you be my father? And Lord would say, no, I'm your father. I'm just going to be your father. But Hebrews 12, 7 says, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there that the father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which you have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not rather be subject to the Father of the spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time. It seemed best for them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The one thing that I, I know myself as a father, and I shared this the other night, is I, I know what it is to be disciplined by the Lord. I spent a lot of time in the woodshed spiritually. That's where the name Spanky comes from. It's like, I, I know I spent so much time, I got tired of going to the woodshed. I'm tired of being there. You see, Proverbs 13, 24 says, he who withholds his, his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. You know, it says a father who doesn't discipline his children hates them. Get that. That's a strong word. Paul loved his children. You know, he, we don't know if he had any natural children. It's like he didn't. They think he was married, but we don't know. So he speaks here as one, as a father who has many children in the Lord. He's one who has spiritual authority. And so he admonishes the children. And he uses his authority in the right way. And sometimes your authority has to be used to exercise discipline. And by the way, in the next chapter, chapter 5, you're going to get such a great example of what he's talking about here as a father. This is what he says in verse 16. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. 
I urge you, he says, though you think you're so great and you've got it all, rather, I want you to be imitators of me. I want you to mimic me. I want you to consider who I am as your father and how I've lived among you, and I want you to follow my example. I want you to follow in your father's steps. I want you to do as I do and live as I live. He's gonna say this again in chapter one, verse one. Well, he'll say, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. I wonder how many fathers can say that to their children. Follow me as I follow Christ. I wonder how many pastors can say that to the flock. Follow me. Not just saying, don't just do what I say, but I'm saying, do what I say as well as do what I do. I always remind myself and other pastors that we are all examples. The thing is, we're not really examples of perfection because all we are is a bunch of flawed individuals, myself and everyone on our staff. But we can be examples of process. What I mean by that is that when we, should we stumble, and we do, and should we fail at times, and we will, and should we miss the boat at certain times, we will do that as well, that they will see that we will always ready to humble ourselves and get ourselves back to a right relationship with God. That's the example I would rather give anyone. Not of a perfect man, because I'm not one. But when things are messed up, I turn to Jesus. And I pray that for all those who come after me. Paul is not boasting here about himself. He's merely leading and acting as a spiritual father to his children in the same manner he says the Lord had led him himself. He had placed himself under the authority of Christ. Likewise, he says, I want you to do the same thing, and I want you to bring honor to the Lord. Again, the Corinthians measured greatness by worldly standards. They measured greatness as those things of being those people who are in charge of others, being wealthy, all the things the world thinks, all the stuff, the treasures that they can show for themselves. Paul shows them the example of his contrast by the greatness of his own greatness in the eyes of the Lord, that really greatness in the eyes of the Lord is found in being humble. It's being a servant. Mark 9, 35, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. A.W. Tozer said, because Christ Jesus came to the world clothed in humility, he will always be found among those who are clothed with humility. He will be found among the humble people the humble people. Be imitators of me, he says. For this reason, verse 17, I've sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Paul says, this is why I'm sending you to Timothy, because I consider him to be a faithful child. He's actually learned from me. And because he's grown up under my example and been disciplined and he's been there, I can now release him to you so that you can now, he'll lead you in the same way. And I was thinking of Paul's instruction to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 where he says to Timothy, you, however, continue in the things you have learned 
and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them, and from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads you to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then he gives it the capstone. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And Paul says, this is the example that I gave to him, and this is the kind of leader that he'll be for you and Timothy. You see, a good shepherd... What he feeds his sheep, but he doesn't feed his sheep with garbage. He feeds his sheep what is good. Pastors never should feed their sheep pop psychology. They should never feed them with the latest survey discovering what all the people want or by teaching on the latest current fad. That stuff makes me sick. It's sickening. No, we have the job. We teach the word of God. We're not here to move along in kind of everybody's whim. And so he says in verse 18, now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I shall find out not with words of those who are arrogant, but with power. Do you hear what he's saying here? He says, for the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. So he says, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod? or with love and a spirit of gentleness. As a father with authority over his children, Paul lovingly but firmly confronts the foolishness. There's some in the church who said, you've become so arrogant. You've become so puffed up. You've become so foolish in your own opinion of yourselves. And even to the point you struggle with any authority over you. And that while the cat's away, the mice will play. In my translation, he's saying, some of you are very arrogant. You think you can get away with it because your father's away. But I want you to know, Lord willing, that very soon I'm going to come to you. When I do, I'm ready to deal with you. <laughs> and I will put you in your place. And that really speaks to the importance of godly leadership. Who will love you that much. It is such a blessing to the church when sin is confronted and when it's dealt with. Why? Because God loves us and he wants so much for us. Paul is acting like a loving father should toward his kids who are misbehaving. And I want to correct you. When our kids were young, one of the tools that Janet would use to get their attention was, do I have to call your father? And should she get me on the phone and says, you talk to your son, you talk to your father, it's like, do I need to come home, son? Do I need to come home? And they all knew what that meant. It wasn't going to be good (laughs) if I came home. But sometimes, you know, when I drive in the driveway, "Uh uh-oh, dad's home. So there's a certain amount of respect that happens there with a father because the children need that kind of respect. And for a time, as their father, you know, I had my own, the fact that I had placed them, God had placed them under my authority. And because of that, I couldn't just be their friend. I had to be a father. And I had to do what was right for them. The important thing is that I know, again, they're gonna, someday they're going to be without me. I want you to know, I was, do not think in any way that I was a perfect father. Because I wasn't. But I can tell you that I loved my children. 
and I love them very much. And I thank God for every bit of time that he gave me with them. But the Paul here comes to the conclusion. He says, I love how he puts it. You tell me what it's going to be for you. Here's the choice. Do I have to come to you with power of the rod, of discipline? Or can I come to you with love and the spirit of gentleness? And it's like, you tell me what's it going to be. He might have to discipline them if he had to, but one way or another, Paul is saying, this nonsense has got to stop. It's time to move on. One of the sad things about our day in church is that people, when they don't like what's going on in church or they feel threatened in any way, they just leave and go to another church where they're not going to feel threatened or disciplined or feel challenged in their walk. I pray that you always know the wisdom of staying in a place where God can speak to your heart, even if it makes you uncomfortable, because he loves you that much. Paul, Peter says in 1 Peter 5, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves in humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you hear that? God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Pride will always keep you away from God. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. It's Father's Day today, and today, again, we honor our fathers, the role of fathers. But I just want to say thank you to my Father in heaven who has loved me so much that he's disciplined me when I've needed it, and I've needed so much of it. Fathers, you all have an important role to play in the lives of your children. As you exercise your authority, I pray that you do so under holy fear, remembering the kind of father that God is to you. Next week on Sunday, Lord willing, I'm going to officially pass off the baton of my leadership here at CCSE to, to Ryan, where he's going to take on and, and share the flock. And I believe in my heart, I would never have thought about turning them over, anyone to you that I didn't think would also share the heart of Jesus for you. Think of Paul like Timothy and, and what his words were. But I have had the joy of being a spiritual father to a lot of you. There's a number of people in our church, I was there when you were first born, not just physically, but when you were born again. I've had a chance to watch you grow and see that and I've loved this role of being not just an earthly father, but a spiritual father. And I can say this, that my prayer for all of you is that you go forward, that you continue to grow up, and that you mature, and that you grow in the love and the grace of God, and that you'll kill the flesh because it seeks to destroy you. And I pray that you'll discover the depths of God's abundant riches, his amazing grace in your life. Because he is a good good father who loves his children. I pray that you come to know him so and that you become light, you become salt, having a greater influence on the world than the world would have upon you. I want to leave you with these words. Though we're Christians, we can be deceived. Y'all understand that? We can be deceived. We, we can be deceived by our flesh, but we don't have to. We can be deceived by the world, but we don't have to. We can be deceived by the devil, but we don't have to. We can remain ignorant and immature, but we don't have to. 
We can choose to resist the spirit and thwart the blessings of God's joy and peace in our lives, but we don't have to. We can choose to hold on to the bitterness, the jealousy, the unforgiveness, but we don't have to. We can choose to follow the foolishness of the world, but we don't have to. We can choose to be held captive by our addictions, but we don't have to. We can choose to yield to the desires of our flesh and disobey God and suffer the consequences for our disobedience, but we don't have to. Amen? Amen. There's a better way. Peter says this, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. He's given us everything we need, believer. We can grow and we can flourish and we can see and bask in the goodness of God's grace and blessing. But I'll tell you something, it's a choice you have to make each and every day where you go from here. God's given us everything we need. And my prayer is, Lord, let us grow up. Let us grow up for the gold, the silver, the precious stones, and so prove our faith is of value, eternal value, as we recognize that right here, this life is simply the preparation for the next one, the real one. This is the shadow, that's the substance. And that God prepares us and makes us ready. Grow up and enjoy the Lord and grow in him. Be filled and empowered with the spirit. Let the spirit of God rescue you from you. Because that's what he does. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you've been blessed by this study. Stay tuned for our next series coming soon.